On the Empire Podcast this week, we get on up with the new James Brown, Chadwick Boseman, and former Concord, Jermaine Clement, and Kiwi multi-hyphenate Haika Waititi drop by to talk about what we do in the shadows. All that, plus usual movie news and nonsense on the only movie podcast that is really happy that Foo Fighters tickets go on sale today, a week before payday. Thanks a bunch, Dave Grohl. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Sadly, I'm joined by just two colleagues of Lethal Cunning this week. First up is our resident film fact fiend, a man so dedicated to the pursuit of arcane movie knowledge he's had all three Empire movie miscellanies tattooed onto the inside of his eyelids, so he can access facts in the blink of an eye. It's Ali Plum. Hello. Hello. How are you today? Good. Excellent. I will move on to the next colleague, who is our art house guru, a man so dedicated to subtitled films he's had the script of every Ingmar Bergman film tattooed on the inside of his eyelids, which explains why he never sleeps. It's Phil Dissemblian. How are you? I'm also a robot. Why are we all robots? <laughs> I don't know today? why we're robots. I'm excited because my favourite band has reformed this week. Which is? It's a band called Ride. Okay. I'm in a minority of about probably six or seven people. I saw someone so else get excited niche. about it on Twitter. Paddy Considine, I think, got excited really? about it on Twitter. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah, oh, apologies to everyone who doesn't care. There you go. <laughs> Which is pretty for most people. Uh, I will check out some albums. Uh, normally, of course, on the podcast at this point, we would be joined by our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. But if you follow Helen on Twitter, uh, at Helen L. O'Hara, uh, you'll know that this week, much to the chagrin of everybody in this podcast, Empire and Helen parted company after 11 years. She was a beloved friend and colleague during that time and she would be much missed. In fact, it's only been a day, but I can already imagine just hearing her voice. It's so weird. Chris, I'm, I'm here. I mean, it's not a big room and I've been here literally this whole time. Guys. Oh my God, it's robot Helen. Uh, <laughs> here she comes. <laughs> Destroy She's us back. all. Hello, Helen. Hello. Here are some lovely questions you guys have been sending in via Twitter. In case you're wondering, yes, Helen has left Empire, but we couldn't bear to have her leave the podcast, so you're coming in. You're doing this regularly, at least until someone with a bit of sense snaps you up and you know that's makes you plan, Uber, yes. Uber Bucks. Uber Bucks would be, yeah. yeah, that's definitely the plan. Uber Bucks. <laughs> that's, yeah. the, that's the plan. That's the plan. It, it hasn't worked so far. In my yeah. experience, everyone who's left Empire over the years... Is now working for Uber. <laughs> is now working for Uber. <laughs> but they, they, you know, everyone, who's, everyone I know who's worked at Empire and has, has left the, the, the magazine mm. has gone on to become wildly successful and earn way more money than they did when they were working at Empire. So I think... Steven Spielberg. <laughs> the only the only exception to the rule is me. I left Empire in 2007, and then I came back because I'm an idiot. If we added up all the invoices you didn't fill in over the years for work that you had actually done, I'm pretty sure we could pay off the national debt. I like to think of it as I'm, I'm being a benevolent god. <laughs> I'm giving people my wisdom for free. Okay. <laughs> Tell my wife that. <laughs> be interesting. Anyway, great to have you back. Let's have some questions now. This is from at Ross T. Miller on the Twitter machine who says, Who do you think should play Lufa in the just announced US remake? My suggestion, Dennis Haysbert. Lufer. Lufer. God damn it. Lufa. Lufer. German. The Lufa. French. Luther. <laughs> Luther. That's pretty good. Scottish. Aloofer. Scottish. <laughs> Aloofer. Welsh. Or Indian. No, no, that's... <laughs> I wouldn't dare insult the Welsh. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, let's put some context around this one, shall we? Shall we? Sure. No. Someone should. Nah. So they're planning oh, yeah. a US remake of Luther. Is that Who the context? The, yes. Yes, they are. They've also recommissioned some more episodes of the UK version. So, yeah, so two more episodes two more of the BBC episodes. version. BBC? BBC? Why couldn't Idris Elba do it? I was thinking exactly the same thing. That name. was my question. He has a yeah. very good American accent, as do I. So it's interesting that they, A, haven't approached me, and B, haven't approached Heimdall. Big Driss. 
Who's to say they have not, eh? Who's to say they have not? Would Ice Cube be far-fetched? Why, why would he be far-fetched? I think, I think Ice Cube would be awesome. Just on his 22 Jump Street, 21 Jump Street form. I think that'd be all right. Well, the, the um, yeah, why, why not Idris Elba? He's involved with it. I mean, he's uh, he's executive producer. It's a, it's a Fox show, and it's got Neil Cross, the creator of Luther, involved as well. So it could turn out to be all right. Well, speaking of Cross, Alex Cross, what mm-hmm. about Tyler Perry? What about Tyler Perry? Did you know Idris Elba was actually going to play Cross at one point in that movie? Interesting. He was down to he was down to play him, and what sounded like a much better version of the film that came out. I thought of Tyler Perry too. I think that would be quite canny. I didn't much like him until I saw him in Gone Girl. He's really good, mm. and mm. he has a massive following in America. And he does. He, I could see him playing that role. So maybe him. Do you think he could do the every other word thing? Yeah. It'd be a bit strange. What's his Cockney accent like? I mean, what's his, like, you know... Lufa! I would love someone, an American remake, to just remake it, but in London, just with new actors and characters. I mean, it's for an American market, but they're just remaking it. What about Dick Van Dyke? <laughs> be amazing. I think we answered that question quite efficiently. I think we've, we've, done a, we've done all the justice it needed. Yeah, why not? Why not Idris Elba playing both roles? David Tennant, of course, yeah. plays the American version of his character from Broadchurch in Grace Point. Um, and uh, the US version of the IT crowd, the original one, Richard Iowati played Moss. And that was a great success. Yeah. And uh, didn't the Red, the Red Dwarf US remake have Robert Llewellyn as, as Crichton? That's right, Crichton yeah. was in mm-hmm. both, yeah. So, you know, there's there's precedent here. just depends whether, you know, Idris Elba's too busy being yelled at by Marvel to, yeah. <laughs> to spare time in his busy schedule or cancelling the apocalypse or whatever it is he's doing these days uh, to, to make room for that. Next question is from at David Street 1976 who asks, Who are your favourite movie drunks? I nominate Burke Dennings in The Exorcist. Brackets. With Nail. Too obvious. Close brackets. Oh. I'd like to say with now. Too obvious. Too obvious. <laughs> too obvious. <laughs> Close brackets. Uh, Helen, uh, you and I are obviously the, 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 the biggest drunks in the Empire office. Famously so, Chris, yeah. Yeah. I think, I, think it's a, I, think, I, think, I think I wrote a piece for Shortlist this week about how to survive Christmas parties when you're a teetotaler. You think you did. You were just too drunk well, and no, you don't I wrote, remember. I, I, don't, I woke up in a haze. I was in a schooner in Denmark. I, it was really weird. Severed head in my duffel bag. That's normal. I think it's out this week. I'm not sure. You're plugging another... Yes, I am! I know I have an invoice for it because I give my wisdom for free. Um, Just like shortlist. mm. Yeah. um, That's how I understand the shortlist thing works. They they don't charge. You don't charge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't really work. Mm. Anyway, so so yeah, I think that's a strong contender. Mm -hmm. Um, I would... I would quite like to mention um, Captain Jack Sparrow as well. Um, I'm assuming it's it's drunkenness there. It may be any manner of of uh, substances involved, <laughs> or just natural. You know, um, yeah. I don't know if, if any. Well, Ali will know this obviously as a Pratchett reader, but uh, he theorises that Captain Vimes, one of his main characters, starts off several drinks below normal. Like he has to have, you know, four drinks or whatever, just to get to the level that everybody else is at as a baseline, right? And I think Captain Jack Sparrow, stick with me, is several drinks above normal uh-huh, uh-huh. as a baseline. Um, so maybe that's why he is Ooh. how he is. Yes. Yeah. What's that Ray Milan quote from Lost Weekend? Mm. One's, one's too, what is it? One's too many and a thousand's not enough. Yeah. He's somewhere in that ballpark. He's somewhere in there. I always felt, wondered See, how Keith Richards must have loved it, but he is actually playing him as a massive drunken idiot in that, isn't he? A much loved massive yeah. drunken idiot. Yeah. Yeah. Really but definitely an idiot. 
Yeah, but I mean, he turned up in it in the third one, so he must be pretty happy. He has he has his wily side, as old Captain Jack. Yeah, Captain Sparrow would be a great drink. They need to make it that would happen. Be a great drink. That's a good bit of Disney merchandising. You mentioned Ray Melander in the last weekend. It is. It's hard to make it funny, though. It is hard to make it funny. I kind of wanted to stay away from like Let- the serious movie alcoholics on the on this one, like well, the you know like last weekend or and Arthur. <laughs> Arthur, uh, you know, Nick Cage in mm. Leaving Las Vegas. But we have to mention, I think, and Helen would agree with me on this, mm-hmm. Jack Lemmon in yes. Days of Wine and Roses. Oh, yes. Because he is He's heartbreaking terrific. in yeah. that film, and all the more so for being, you know, a naturally kind of a gifted comic actor as well. I thought you were saying a naturally gifted drunk. A naturally gifted <laughs> drunk. The Waco Kid from Blazing Saddles. Oh, my God, yes. The Waco Kid. What? Gene Wilder's Waco Kid. Was he walking down the street and... He heard, stick him up, mm-hmm. he turned around, it was a six-year-old, Yeah. and he turned around again, he shot him in the ass, yes, and then he, he went into a bar and buried himself with a bottle of whiskey, and he's been there ever since. Uh, I love the Waco kid, I love when he's, um, I love his shaky hand joke, that's so good, yes. you know, <laughs> I, I shoot, you know, my head, look at that, I said he's a rock, yes, but I shoot with this hand, always good to do facial jokes on the podcast, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, enormously I, 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 I enjoyed I, it. I love Gene Wilder in that one. Uh, I love, uh, yeah... It's it's so weird because um, obviously we don't condone drinking to excess. No, indeed. Especially uh, up ahead of the Christmas season, you know, drink responsibly. But I love Peter O'Toole in my favourite year. It's fantastic. He plays a, an old soak and Errol Flynn-esque, or let's be honest, a Peter O'Toole-esque <laughs> uh, actor who is, again, buried at the bottom of a bottle. But he's this wonderful old louche. And he's, he's great. There's a great scene where he goes into a... <laughs> He goes into a toilet, a lady's toilet, and there's an old lady there who's very indignant. And she goes, "He goes, this is for ladies." And he and, he, and uh, it's Alan Swan. And he points down at his crotch and goes, "Yes, madam." And so is this. But now and again, I have to run a little water through it. And it's, just, it's so good. It's so good. If you haven't seen that film, do check it out. I, lo- I love a sort of W. C. Fields esque. Mm. Old soak with the old red nose. Denim Elliott plays a great one in another film. I don't think a lot of people have seen Noises Off. He's a great, uh, another sozzled actor uh, called Selsden. Uh, great screen drunk if you want to check out. Seen the play out. three times if that the counts. The play is so good. so good. The film is fantastic. I, I love the film. I mean, it's it's Peter Bogdanovich, but it's it's really, really fun. Michael Caine, great cast, Christopher Reeve, John Ritter. Yeah, I really want to see the film. Have you never seen the film? Do you have it on DVD? I've got it on, I've got it on disc, yeah. I've got it on, on the disc. On the disc, I've got I've got it on a disc. That's how old it is. I, you know, a I, laser I'll, disc. I won't stream it straight to your eyeballs. <laughs> a laser disc. You're gonna roll it into work. <laughs> I've got it on. <laughs> I've got it on a beta disc with a stick. Yeah. <laughs> Just tapping it, tapping the hoop. There is a good WC Fields quote. Now you mentioned him. A woman joined me to drink, and I didn't even have the decency to thank her. <laughs> <laughs> also, we have to mention Cary Grant in North by Northwest when the villains make him drunk oh, to try yeah. and yep. and he's driving down. The side of the mountain. Ooh. Get, just <laughs> doing movie driving just acting. Just doing movie driving <laughs> acting, like 101 to his heart's content against the most obvious back projection. It's hilarious. I love him in that. And um, and also, an honorary mention for, I don't know if he cut him as a drunk or just a drinker, mm-hmm. but the double take Bond guy from Moonraker and I think also The Spy Who Loved Me. Mm-hmm. When the bondola comes across and he looks and he's drinking and he looks at the bottle. Yes. And when he sees the bottle, he looks back. That's 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 a classic trope of mm. 70s and 80s cinema where something incredible happens. Superman does it the as Superman, well. Superman, I was about to say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like, did I just see that? And then they either do one or two things. They either pour the drink away or they just carry on and, you know, <laughs> and then presumably die off screen in a really tragic and horrible wow, fashion. Wow, thanks, thanks for... Can I suggest possibly the, on a high note there. the best <laughs> movie drunk there's ever been is... 
Mary Poppins. I think she was obviously Ooh. off her face. <laughs> <laughs> the things that came out of her mouth and yeah. what we see on screen, uh-huh. I think she was spiking all those spoonfuls of sugar because oh my God. the stuff that goes on in that film is off the charts. Do you hear how Dick Van Dyke sounds? He's also obviously blotto. Oh, Mary Poppins! I, I love you, Mary Poppins! Said Chevrolet! Uh, how about you, Abbott? Super Catholic. I'm always blowing bubbles! When she was referring to a spoonful of sugar, she meant heroin. Gin. Gin. Drug booze. There we go. 20 great drug Disney characters. <laughs> My word. Yes? Yes. Baloo? Shit faced. Yeah, Nuts. absolutely. Wow, okay, I think we got to the bottom of this, guys. This is, this is huge. Uh, should we mention some more or are we done? A quick mention for Elizabeth Taylor in uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oh, yeah. I know we were trying not to, to mention the serious ones, but she is yeah. extremely good in that. She is extremely good. I love the scene in Jaws where the three guys get drunk, which obviously uh, ultimately leads to Quint's Indianapolis speech, but that is just such a, a wonderful scene of, of camaraderie and bonding. And has that great sea shanty as well. Uh, Robert Hayes, an airplane. Mm. Who's a drinking problem? Uh, just an amazing <laughs> joke. Uh, love Michael Caine in, in Educating Rita. Um, and, of course, Jackie Chan. And, oh, Dean Martin in Rio Bravo. Yes, I Drunk Master. Drunk yeah. Master. Drunk Master, yeah. That's and, so good. Uh, and I love Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places when um, when he goes off the rails and he's wearing the Santa suit and he's, he's, <laughs> he's basically, in the space of a couple of hours, has become this massive... You can smell the piss coming off the screen and he's just in this Santa suit and it's just sodden and fish in dirty his beard. he's got the fish in his beard and he's going his basic response to everything is training places five stars empire you can smell the piss <laughs> <laughs> smell a vision that'd be awesome that's it we done I think so we happy alright didn't mention John Belushi did we no we didn't in, uh, in, in Animal House anyway yes drink responsibly kids <laughs> don't drink not kids don't Give drink to kids. Oh, God, this has all gone wrong. Anyway, if you want to have your questions read out on the Emperor Podcast, do send them in. We're on Twitter, at Emperor Magazine. Use the hashtag Emperor Podcast. You can email them to us, podcast at emperoronline.com. Or you can Facebook us. We are Empire Magazine as well. Drink responsibly. Time now for our first guest, who's a fast-rising American actor, best known over here, at least for the time being, for his role as Jackie Robinson in last year's baseball drama, 42. That's about a change, of course, as his performance as James Brown, the former editor of Loaded... Oh, uh, sorry, hang no. on. No, the, the American soul. The godfather of soul, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the godfather of soul, yeah. Uh, James Brown, the godfather of soul in this week. I don't know how that made a mistake. Anyway. Uh, James Brown, the godfather of soul in this week's Get On Up has generated Oscar buzz and caught the eye of Marvel Studios who cast him as Black Panther, their first person of colour superhero. He is, of course, Chadwick Boseman. And when he came to London before the Black Panther news broke, he spoke to Helen and Ali about becoming James Brown. So, Chadwick Boseman, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Thank you. There were a lot of concerts in this film. There were a lot of, there was lots of singing. How much of it was your own? The percentage, I'm not sure, but like the 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 majority of the the concerts, like like the concert scenes are him singing live. Like we wanted you to hear his voice, not mine. We wanted you to go out and buy his albums, not mine. <laughs> So uh, it's him singing, and um, we we felt like that was the quintessential James Brown um, thing was his live performances. So you hear me at moments um, for various reasons in those um, 
in those recordings because some of the recordings of the masters are not that great. Um, so there are things that you miss. You hear me at moments just because, you know, A, you, I mean, B, you could not do this um, without me actually singing. Yeah. Like I had to actually be singing because it would just look crazy if I was just mouthing it. So those were those moments were recorded as well. So there were certain moments where it was like, you know, we just wanted to be free and open. And it was easier to do a scene if I if I went, please, please. Like it was easier for me to do that in one of those um, sections of please. Mm. And so that remained in the movie just because it worked yeah. you know whereas there are other moments and you'll even see more of them probably once it goes to dvd where the band is coming up with a song or something and or um you know i have to sing to goodbye to to my um my wife and kid yeah those moments are me you know what i'm saying like so or when bobby bird and i first meet each other that's me you know it, it those those moments when it's not a live recording it you know you know, I'm able to actually sing. That's pretty cool. And I mean, you only had two months to prepare all of this, which is an insanely short time to, I mean, I imagine getting the accent and the voice right was, was a challenge. I imagine learning all the dance moves was a challenge. And, and you've got to portray him for 40 years of his life, which is a huge <laughs> mental challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, all of it is, um, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, 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 it was a concentrated um, task as as far as like you know there are a lot of elements at play and um you know i had some great people around me to help me do that like i had um akman jones was a fabulous choreographer and coach um and he was a drill sergeant pretty much <laughs> you know we would do we would go through certain songs like over and over and over again like and that's it's like i, I like in that ski party scene is pretty much it's a like a four four minute solo singing to the song while you do it so it's like a like an 800 meter sprint and we would do it like seven eight times in a row before we took a break you know no break between you know each um take of it and i'm just talking about rehearsal i'm not talking about Whoa. shooting so um on a given day we doing you know, four or five songs like that. And with with changes, improvisations, trying new things each time, and then I'll go. You know, he was a drill sergeant. So when we got to the point where we were doing rehearsal, I mean, doing the um, the, the actual shooting, it was, it was like, you know, you're ready. <laughs> you're ready to do this all day long because um, the, the rehearsals were so intense. And I, and I also had a, a fabulous voice coach who um, his task was really to, to, to help me to sing, you know, outside of those concert scenes and to sing inside the concert scenes without hurting my voice. Um, because it's, it, when people don't think about when you're shooting a movie, you're doing that stuff all day long. You know, it's 12 to 15 hours of whatever that is. Um, so it's a, it's a marathon. His voice is obviously his voice with a capital H, like James Rand's voice is incredible. Did you have a trigger word to get you into his voice? What helps you get into James Brown's trigger voice? Word. <laughs> is, is trigger word. Tell me maybe, it's funk. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, I should, maybe I should find a trigger word. Like, that's a good idea. <laughs> like, um, no, it was just a placement. 
I think it was a placement. Like it was a placement issue. Like you know, he's he places his voice in a particular in, in a particular way, and then in that placement, um, it was sort of us, you know, training the vocal cords and reshaping them in a way where it wouldn't hurt. You know, you know, finding a placement once you have it is not was not hard. Um, but at first, just mentally, that was a difficult thing. Was there a, a particular dance move that p- proved a, a challenge? Because I imagine doing the splits. There was something like, I think you, you said at the Q&A on Sunday, that you did it something like 90 times in a single day, which I imagine must have been a bit of a strain, even after all the, the training. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, by the last one. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I hope y'all got it. Like, I hope you get And it was mainly because in that in that Olympia performance, there's there's like those three songs that think it was three songs that we did in in there were different moments throughout that performance where so it wasn't just for one like one split it was several splits in that scene um you know i don't know what the hardest dance move is (laughs) you know i don't i don't know um because it's more complicated than that like he you know we would be practicing uh, it, it, like it was like combining things together. Like I saw him on one uh, tape where he threw the microphone and he caught it on his shoulder, and then he did a split and came back up with it on his shoulder. And um, you know, I had been practicing that and never got it. Like got hit in the face with the mic. You know, that mic coming back at you is dangerous. And so uh, I I ended up getting it, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I got it in the movie, you know what I'm saying? I got it, I caught it, and it went down. Um, it, it was one version of him doing that, and I've seen him do it, and it was, like, way smoother than I did it. <laughs> and I've seen him doing it as like how I did it, but I've seen him doing it as way smoother than I did it. But there was things like that where it was, like, combination things, like, you know, him throwing the mic bringing it back, doing a spin, coming back, spinning, sliding up. It was those types of moves that, that um, you know, after you've sort of studied the vocabulary, you're combining things together that you've seen um, or your own versions of it. Um, it was those types of things that were difficult as opposed to, you know, one step. Yeah. So what about the um, the prosthetics? Because that's some t- something that actors sometimes have a really tough time with. And I mean, you were going from playing him at sort of 17 in the morning to 63 in the afternoon kind of thing. So I guess there was quite a lot of, you know, days where you'd suddenly have to put them on over lunch, that kind of thing. You just sort of have to, you know, meditate and take yourself, you know, sometimes it's better to come in sleepy. So you, so you just go to sleep while they do it. And it's, there's no way of getting around how uncomfortable the prosthetics are. Like the process is just, it's just uncomfortable. It's about three hours of like the older James Brown. It takes about three hours to do it. So it's just a process of, of, you know, sitting there waiting and trying to use it uh, to your advantage to try to get into the character or or trying to catch up on some sleep or whatever (laughs) you need to do. But it's nothing that makes it easy. I imagine, yeah. What about, because you have the producer here, one of the producers is Mick Jagger. How hard was it to keep your cool when you met him for the first time. I know you're professional. I'm sure you were fine. But in the back of your head was there a moment going, oh my God, that's Mick Well, Jagger. you know, the thing about it is he put me at ease. Oh, yeah. 
Mick Jagger put me at ease with with the he was he was one of the key factors that that made it comfortable as opposed to making me feel like oh my gosh he's you know I felt like he we understood the same movie um, when we talked about it um, we had the same goals for the most part and you know he, I felt like he um, when he talked about James Brown he talked about him from a way you know he knew him he made him he made him human because they're they're on the same level you know what I'm saying like they they're colleagues and so the fact that he was somehow talking to me about it in such a comfortable way and he's and he's a cool cool guy it actually made me feel comfortable with with the project or comfortable with what I was doing and so it was the exact opposite effect I was glad to see him on set I was glad um we could sit down and talk about music I was glad well thank you so much for taking the time thank you thank you thank you Lovely, lovely Chadwick Boseman there. Uh, how was he? Quite unwell. He mm. was got the sniffles. No! Yep. Is he okay? I think he should be fine now. Okay. Uh, well, now he's better. It's time to move on to movie news. What do we have this week? Ooh. Who wants to lead um, off? Well, I have exciting news of a Paul Greengrass project, um, or at least a potential one. Mm-hmm. Um, he is apparently attached by Sony to direct a new version of 1984, the great, great George Orwell novel. Mm-hmm. Um, originally written in 1948, published, I think, the following year. It is, of course, the story of a totalitarian society and one Winston Smith who lives in it and tries to carve out a little bit of freedom from the doublethink and uh, newspeak of his, his world. And, well, essentially, I'm not going to... I am going to spoil a book that's 70 years old, uh, finds that's not really that easy to do. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been filmed before pretty well, but not brilliantly, I would say, the John Hurt uh, film of 1984, John Hurt starring mm-hmm. film, um, directed by Michael Radford, is probably the best. Um, there was actually a very good stage show at the Almeida last year, um, which did a pretty good fist of adapting it. So... Um, and given the way that, frankly, the world seems to be going, it seems like as good a time as any to uh, bring 1984 back. I mean, obviously, when it was written, it was conceived as a, a sort of a satire of the the way that Soviet society was going. Nowadays, you know, it could, frankly, apply to any of us. So, Do you think there will be sequels? <laughs> no. I, God, I hope not. <laughs> do you have to see the previous 1,983 versions in order to understand this one, etc., 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 and so on you and so do. forth? Um, are there any cameras in here? I was just wondering that. Let's say no, Chris. I think they've probably put a Why down would us. you ask? <laughs> I don't know, Robo Helen. <laughs> is that a camera? No, that's a smoke detector. Or, or is, is it? it? Yeah, there we go. That's a real rub, isn't it? This is interesting. Presumably he's going to do this after he returns to Bourne, or can he squeeze it in before Bourne, or it, is this one of the myriad mm. projects that he's linked to but never gets around to doing? Who knows, actually. It seems to be probably post-born that's the thinking at the moment given that that has the release date in 2016 the finding neverland stage show writer james graham is is set to write it so presumably there's still a bit of work to be done on the script it hasn't been written yet we're told mm. um and scott ridden is producing um which mm-hmm. is uh, a heck of a mark of quality and also greengrass himself is a heck of a mark of quality um yes. the the match of him and 1984 to me just seems like a match made in heaven really um, yeah i always imagine terry gilliam would would 
that would be Terry Gilliam country. He probably feels he's already done it. But he's sort of done it in other ways, hasn't he? Yeah, he kind of did it, I guess, a bit in Brazil. And I think he might be a bit... That might he's a slightly takes a slightly zanier angle on stuff, and I think there's something to be said for a very unzany yeah. 1984. Actually, I watched that the uh, John Hurt one mm. very recently. Actually, it's quite stark. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously pretty stark material, but mm. it's a very bleak kind of journey. Do you know I actually voted in the first season of Big Brother? Mm-hmm. I actually voted for wow. Craig. Yeah, for Craig. Yeah, of course, because Craig's a legend. Yeah. What's he up to these days? Uh, he is a um, he before he became Craig. Uh, he was a carpenter and a handyman, and he carried on just like Jesus. Some, yeah, he did some handyman shows, and I think he's probably just being a handyman. Uh, should we move on? Yeah. yeah. What's next? Yeah. A great piece of definite real news that isn't in any way just conjecture. <laughs> Highlander is a reboot. It's being rebooted. Wow. Uh, Highlander, as we all know, is the story of a man who is not just a man; he's also a Highlander. Wow. I know, right? And they're rebooting it, and instead of actually getting somebody who's genuinely Egyptian Scottish. They're considering, <laughs> sorry, Egyptian, Scottish, French? No, no Egyptian, Egyptian, Scottish, Spanish. Some are rebooting this, and I think you, you go through your list of really big names that would make this movie easier to sell and talk about or whatever, and one of the names that's been announced or leaked, shall we say, is Tom Cruise. No. There's no way on hell or in hell or around hell or near hell this is going to happen, but I love the idea that Tom Cruise could do anything like Sean Connery did in that immortal film pun intended uh, Highlander the first one is absolutely terrible it's not as terrible as the <clears> second one true but it, there, there's this feeling that Highlander is some sort of classic from the 1980s it's not it's awful it's an incoherent mess and the only good thing about two good things about it okay three good things about it okay, four, it's brilliant um, <laughs> Connery's fantastic He's and Clancy Brown's great fantastic. otherwise yeah. What a load of balls. And they should just leave it well alone. The basic idea of somebody cutting off lots of heads and living through the centuries, I really enjoyed. I have have actually watched a lot of the TV series, Mm. The Raven as well as the Highlander TV series, purely because I lived in France for a year. Anyone out there who has lived in France will know that French TV is inutterably shit. Right. Um, It is wall-to-wall game shows on two of the five channels. All day, every day. And don't forget, Luther! Luther! Guignol d'enfant! So you basically end up uh, watching uh, M6, uh, which was the only TV uh, TV channel that seemed to have any, you know, stuff of American or UK origin. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got things like Dr. Queen Femme Médecin. That was Dr. Quinn Médecin. Oh, yeah, 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 I, yeah I, got that. I got that. And, uh, and also Highlander. And so I ended up watching lots of it in French. Um, and it's terrible, obviously. But at the same time, it's so much better than all the rest of French TV that I have this unaccountable fondness for all things Highlander, even the films that make no sense. None. You missed a very good thing. I, but by the way, the cartoon, have you seen the cartoon, the Highlander no. cartoon? That's no. genuinely good. Because they can do anything and it's kind of, Future steampunk sci-fi weirdness, but the the song by Queen, "Who Wants to Live Forever," oh, so oh, yes. is <laughs> so great. I actually, when I've watched Highlander, maybe mm. two or three or four times, I watched it once in IMAX as part of a all-night sci-fi bender that IMAX mm. sometimes do. They do an all-nighters. They do an all-nighters. They do some all-nighters sometimes. And uh, yeah, I thought, wow, this movie's great. I'd forgotten how great this movie is as Queen belts out of the, sc- uh, so, the speakers. Yeah, and then. After about two minutes, you see Christophe Lambert just flapping around, just not able to really nail any accent, let alone a Scottish one. <laughs> That's why people think that film is good, he's because even, of that one song. 
that's, that's not the song I associate with Highlander. Uh, it's kind of magic. It's a kind of magic. Both in that's, yeah, Well, no, both, both, both yeah. those songs. Both that's those the songs. song. That's the okay. So that's four good things about Highlander now. Here's to Tom Cruise doing great work. Can't see him committing to that though. Can you? No. Yeah. No. 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 Don't think so. Okay. Unlikely. So Never know. Never know. He was in. He what's he been in that's been really off the cuff? I thought that was really weird. Was um, of course that uh, rock and roll seventies, weird not seventies eighties weirdness. Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages. Yes, yeah. mm. there you go. That All was right. weird. Seems mm. weird though. I, I, I'd be. I take that one with a pinch of salt. Phil. Hi. We've been talking about movie news now for ten yes. minutes, and you haven't mentioned the Steve not Jobs yet. movie once. Well, let so, me mention it now. Uh, you know, <laughs> if it's not too late. Yeah. Never. I'm getting people tweeting me with Steve Jobs updates. It's awesome. Uh, at Darren Reiter came through this week with some with some hot news which I have in front of me mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Steve Jobs is talking about the Jobs movie not Steve Jobs he's not talking <laughs> oh about it Steve Jobs is talking about Aaron Sorkin Aaron Sorkin is talking about the Jobs movie now I think the reason he's talking about the Jobs movie and the reason I can talk about it every bloody week on the podcast until everyone's blue in the face is that they still don't have a cast they still don't have a Steve Jobs. Well, they don't have a studio. They don't have a studio either. That's the other bit of news. There's yeah. so much Steve Jobs news. We needed a special podcast. Um, basically, Fassbender's still kind of linked, um, and Sony have let this one go. They're not going to be distributing it. Mm-hmm. Although Universal, in footballing transfer parlance, are... They've picked it up on a Bosman. But it's still sort of floating around, and they're not really... It's not coming together in a way that you'd hope a Danny Boyle movie would. So, fingers crossed, but, but Sorkin's been talking about what he's got in mind. He's got a 180-something page script, which translates into a three-hour movie, obviously. And uh, 100 of those pages will be focused on Steve Jobs himself, but his daughter will be a major part of that as well. There was some issue over her paternity, his paternity of her, um, and they patched it up. And so there'll be a lot of personal stuff and a lot less computer programming. So, hmm. that's that. And um, I'm not going to talk about Steve Jobs in the podcast again. No, no, no do it. No, do it. I, I think people have had enough. No, we bang on about Marvel every bloody week, so why not? Why not talk about Steve Jobs? Okay. Do it. All right, then. Do it. Well, now? Every again. week. Every okay, week. We'll every set aside week. a special five-minute slot. Every, even when I'm not here, I'll phone in with Steve Jobs news. And also, just quickly, um, mm-hmm. I think this was a few days ago now, but Daniel Brühl, an actor who I think is very, very fine, an actor who's fantastic in Rush and fantastic in Goodbye Lennon, who's mm-hmm. kind of breakthrough, um, is going to be playing a character in the next Captain America movie. Uh, we don't know who that is. Oh my God, you've combined Jobs news and Marvel news. Yeah. How do you like that? I, like I can it. do both. I like it. Um, the rumour is he may be playing Red Skull, potentially. Oh, come along. That seems unlikely, because didn't he disintegrate in a Tesseract-fueled kind of oblivion? He did, but it doesn't mean he's dead. And uh, He was, of course, played by Hugo Weaving, who then famously went, oh, I don't want to do that again, because didn't like the makeup and stuff uh, so they might bring Red Skull back again he is the quintessential Captain America villain but this could be people just going well he's German <laughs> ergo he must be playing the Red Skull which does not follow as we know it doesn't but, like uh, Toby Jones precisely there, there was also the follow up story to that of course which uh, suggested that he was playing some sort of Baron and also that he would play a bigger role in the Doctor Strange movie, that his role in the in Captain America Civil War would be a sort of small introduction, mm-hmm. and we'd get to see more of him in Doctor Strange. So what you've got to wonder is, are we talking about someone who's actually more associated with Strange than he is with Cap? Very interesting. Which would put us back, potentially, in classic Strange territory, with yes. back to Baron Mordo. Oh. Because, the, you know, Baron, I think it's Zemo, or Zemo, Zemo is yeah. more associated with, with Cap. Yes. Um, 
but he wouldn't necessarily fit if we're talking about somebody who has a bigger role in Strange. So a lot of barons involved, isn't it? A lot of, but there are actually, Jenny, that's only two of the many barons. I mean, obviously, we've already got another one in Avengers Edge of Ultron. Um, so, you know, mm. many, many barons in the in the Marvel Universe. I think if you're going to be a member of the aristocracy and a Marvel villain, you're probably a baron. Dukes seem to be more, more or less okay. Baron's really dodgy. What about Baron Greenback? Where does he fit into all this? <laughs> okay, yeah, that's that's all very interesting. Also, uh, it was confirmed this week, I think it was hinted at before, that uh, our good friend Chadwick Boseman of just a few minutes ago uh, will make his uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe debut in Captain America Civil War as Black Panther, which is, uh, unless of course he shows up very briefly in Avengers Age of Ultron, which I don't think is the current plan. So that's kind of interesting. So they're using that film as a kind of jumping off point, I guess, for Black Panther and a little bit Doctor Strange. Will that be where we see Doctor Strange for the first time as well? Who knows? Who but, knows? Um, but I just, I, that film, so exciting. It also does slightly worry me. It seems there's a lot to pack in to Captain America Civil War at the moment. It does. I think, I mean, it but depends we'll It depends what kind of weight they give them and how much screen time they, they attempt to give them. Because quite frankly, if they just sort of show up almost like in a post-credit sting like you saw with uh, Baron Von Stucker at the end of... Iron Man 3 Captain America, Captain the, Winter America the Winter Soldier yes, yes. Uh, then I forget where I've seen all this stuff I know, um, then uh, then it doesn't have to take up a huge amount of, of anybody's space or uh, you know so true it, 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 this can work out this, this can could be work good. out I'm, I'm excited about Civil War I don't know how Steve Jobs is going to fit into the Marvel Cinematic Universe but uh, I think well, well it's good to see they're giving it a go that, that's what I understood the last story anyway Phil is that but the best way is basically the, the gist yes yeah okay yes. fair enough let's move on and we are now back in the podcast booth on Friday morning. It's just Phil and myself because after we recorded the podcast yesterday, in fact, while we were recording the podcast yesterday, the uh, the sad news broke that the legendary director Mike Nichols, the guy who directed The Graduate, Catch Twenty Two, Carnal Knowledge, Birdcage, just classic films uh, ago ago, uh, passed away at the age of eighty three. An incredible loss, Phil. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Um, he's one of those filmmakers like Sidney Pollock who was making really good films right up to right up right into his 70s his last one of course charlie wilson's war which was scripted by aaron sorkin mm-hmm. was what six years ago uh, and, and and a film that you know had the sort of zest of a, of a, a much younger filmmaker uh, he never really lost that he never really was a man out of time he managed to span span different generations you know he's, he broke through in the 60s you know his most famous and probably his best film the graduate Mm -hmm. captured the zeitgeist of america at the sort of tail end of the 60s as it was heading towards the disillusionment of the 1970s you know a very funny very acerbic very citric film but you know then he went on and made films like working girl and regarding henry and citric in his own way it kind of is but yeah but i mean again a very 80s feeling film a film that you know was imbued with the sort of you know, it wasn't Wall Street, but it was it was sort of of its time, and mm-hmm. it captured that spirit. Um, and he would just go on and keep doing that. I think somebody tweeted yesterday that he was a man who captured the zeitgeist of sort of every era, and he had the ability to do that really, really effortlessly. And he was obviously a great craftsman as well, wasn't he? He was, and I think actors love working with him. As you mentioned, he worked with Harrison Ford and Working Girl, and uh, again regarding Henry, uh, people love to come back. For seconds with Mike Nichols, <clears throat> excuse my voice. Sigourney Weaver, for example, worked with him in the very first uh, stage version of Hurley Burley and Working Girl as well. And she, I interviewed her a couple of, uh, about a month ago in New York. She was waxing lyrical about Mike Nichols. You know, he was one of the people who really 
galvanised her career, along with the likes of Peter Weir and obviously Ridley Scott, really pointed her in the right direction. A fantastic director, he was a very urbane man, very, very uh, witty man. I haven't listened, I'll be honest, to his uh, early back-and-forth comedy with Elaine May, the great Elaine May, which a lot of people, after he died, were recommending, so I'm going to be doing that this weekend. But um, he was... He was enormously funny but he also had you know he had things to say and he he he, um he took on movies that were unorthodox as well to try and film catch 22 you know is an incredible undertaking that no one else has tried since and it's a good film it's a fine film it's virtually one of the one of the most unfilmable books and he really really get you know it's a it's a it's a it's an excellent movie he's got images that just stayed with me forever there's an incredible scene where a naked lady is waving to you, Azari. Do you remember the scene? Mm. Naked lady's waving mm. to you, Azari, and then she gets cut in two by yep. a plane, and that's just an image. That, you know, I saw that film when I was about 11 or 12, and that's that just remember that stayed bit. with me the rest of my life. The end scene of The Graduate, the end shot of The Graduate, or, or Benjamin in the swimming pool, sitting in the swimming pool, just, you know, so utterly, you know, uh, riven by ennui that he can't even raise himself to get out of a swimming pool. It's just he his 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 films are full of indelible images and uh, indelible jokes. And it's weird when Robin Williams died a few months ago. The Birdcage was the the movie I turned to to celebrate Robin Williams, and uh, it's very much uppermost up in my thoughts uh, again when when Mike Nichols uh, died because uh, I, I love that film. I think it's it's a sorely underrated movie. Obviously, as a heavy drinker, Chris, you'll be delving into Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I will be. Playing the Who's well, Afraid of Virginia Woolf drinking game. We, we talked we, we talk about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in this very podcast. Uh, seems so so weird. Um, but yes, yeah, so many great films. And The Day of the Dolphins, a film I haven't seen, and I really, really, really want to hunt it down now and, and check it out. He did. He, <clears throat> like um, people like Billy Wilder, I guess Fritz Lang of a different generation, he was one of those uh, German emigres originally I think Russian Austrian but but fled Germany before the Nazis because he had Jewish blood um, and you know again another it was a sort of a, a a wave of great filmmakers made their way to America and he was definitely one of them but he started off making uh, you know Broadway plays I made a name for himself very quickly on uh, you know this on this directing plays by uh, Neil Simon and um, Barefoot in the Park won him a Tony Award and he won a Tony an Emmy an Oscar yeah and a Grammy, right? He was a member of the EGOT Club. That's what they call people who who win Emmys, uh, Oscars, Grammys, and Tonys. EGOT. EGOT. That's it's pretty a very cool. very rarefied air. There aren't there aren't even ten of them, are there? I don't think. I don't think so. No. So um, you know, tribute to him. But I think people liked him as a person as well, which is always nice to hear. Genuine kind of tributes. Absolutely. To the human as well as the the, the artist. It's been great seeing you know, the uh, the number of megastars you know who've who've come out and you know, paid tribute to him. Uh, Kevin Spacey, Steven Spielberg, Meryl Streep, people like that. It's been it's been fantastic. Uh, what's what what one film would you watch of his? I've never seen Closer. I'm ashamed to admit. So I think I might have a look at that. I'm okay. not sure if that's the film that I want to remember him by necessarily. I get the feeling it might not be. But so we um, both have gaps in our in our Nicholas knowledge. I, I have to see the Dolphin. You haven't seen Closer. Uh, but what what one film of his that you have seen would you would you watch as a tribute to him? Would you would you recommend to someone is the quintessential Nichols? I think the quintessential Nichols has to be The Graduate, really. Yeah. Um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is fantastic, you mm-hmm. know, and obviously Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton are mesmerising in it. Um, but I think it has to be The Graduate. That's one of the all time greats of cinema. Not Woolf, not Jack Nicholson pissing on James Spader's shoes. That's also one of the all-time greats of cinema. <laughs> um, but maybe, yeah, maybe a double maybe, maybe bill. Stick with the gra- yeah, The Graduate and Wolf is a nice double bill. Uh, but he was, he was a legend, a giant of my film directors. He would be much missed, the great Mike Nichols. 
All right, so then it is time for our second interview of the pod. Uh, podcast meeting. Helen. Present. Ali. Present. Phil. Present. Jermaine. Not present, uh, but that's because Jermaine Clement, a former member of Flight of the Concords, and Taika Waititi, the stars slash writers slash director, in Taika's case, uh, of ace vampire comedy What We Do in the Shadows, were in the booth a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking to Helen and Ali. With us in the Empire Pod booth are Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi. Have I got that's that pronunciation? Have I got that terribly wrong? No, I mean, I didn't even know how to um, actually... What's the worst way anybody's tried to tackle your name? So, uh, I think it's like Taco Witate or something. Yeah, it was terrible. It was in America. Taco. Taco. Taco, you know, it's a kind of... Um, he said, I'm, I'm going to absolutely murder this name. And he did. <laughs> Completely. He made no effort to even look at that. They're just normal vowels. It sounds like it was deliberate. Yeah. Call you taco or taito. Maybe he was just really hungry and thinking about tacos. And, and potatoes. And got Who knows confused. what was going on in his mind. Just think of tiger. He changed the G to a K. Uh-huh. And the E and the R to an A. Tiger. Easy. Simple. When you say it like so that. It's, so it's easy as that. It's the, getting the image of the tiger that's the hardest. Yeah. Yeah. Think of a tiger. <laughs> and instead, rub it out. Erase the image the end and then start writing letters. Yes. And you're fine. And the second name is like Waikiki in Hawaii. This is going to take up all but our instead time. Instead of the Ks, it's Ts. <laughs> it's going to take up the whole interview's time as you descri- describing how to pronounce we- your name. So you, right. you've been working on this for something like seven years. You decided mm. well, to... Well, okay, we're not... Not, 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 not fully. working on. Just not talking about. Yeah. Thinking about mm. it. Nine years. Mentioning Nine years. it. Mm-hmm. Now and then. Percolating it. Letting, letting it really... Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2005 we... Um, we thought of the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know when we first started actually writing anything. Probably about four years later. We made the short straight away when we had the idea. Yeah, and uh, motivated. We we're very motivated at the time. <laughs> we were younger. Yeah, we just got some cameras. We went to a we went to a costume shop and uh, made a little short that was about half an hour long and probably quite embarrassing. I haven't seen it since then. You didn't go back to it before you started the actual film production. No, I don't think it would have been a good idea. We remember it was so the best budget. things we put in again, uh, you know, a ghost cup. That was, <laughs> that was, that was one of the best things that was in that <laughs> short film. So <laughs> it won't be a DVD extra then? It, it will, will be. be. It will be will a DVD extra. But we extra. still won't watch it. I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm not getting that DVD though. We're just going to put it out. It's up to you whether you watch We've it. We've been collecting all the um, stuff that can go on the DVD, and I think it's going to be about six discs. Wow. This I was told I read an interview somewhere there it was 125 hours that you had to fill it down to an 87 minute film. Yeah, that's well, right. we could have made it a three hour film. You know, this is about vampires living together in a house in a flat share, but there's also a world it took of a long time flat to get share. to this point. We probably it did, didn't it? Yeah. We just call it a flat, but yeah, you call so, it a flat. Yeah, okay. it's flat. But you you also use the word flatting, which is a very New Zealand word. Yeah, what did you say? Flat sharing. Flat sharing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, you can shorten it if you want. Yeah, to. I guess. So they say there's also. Unless you, is that what is flatting mean something else here? I don't think it means anything. No, it's well, just a really see, it's not taken. So you're probably doing, doing some kind of drug. Probably. We were flatting, <laughs> we were flatting, flatting off our faces last night. Got totally flatted. <laughs> That's right. I can imagine someone lying Why down a bag of on flat, their face. Man, some flat. We're flatted. <laughs> you got flatted last night. <laughs> Massive bag of flat. There's also a world of werewolves as well, and part of me wants to find out more about the werewolf world. Is there any chance we're going to get another short, perhaps, with we, with Reece Darby's Anton? Well, it's a good. It's a short is good and a good idea. We do. We do want to do that. Um, 
called What We Do in the Moonlight. Oh. Um, following, romantic, yeah, following the werewolves around and, you know, seeing how, like, you know, they um, maybe, you know, like how their wives chain them up at night, you know, on this, those special occasions. It's not a metaphor, though. No. Literal. There's a walk-by, let's call it that, where the vampires are out in the streets of Wellington and so are the werewolves, and the werewolves don't want to get angry because otherwise they might, you know, change. What was left on the cutting room floor when it came to those those not swear-based insults? Those scenes were pretty long. They went on and on. Like we just, I mean, Basically, for those of you who don't know, the whole film's improvised. So those scenes with the werewolves, and every scene went on probably about 10 minutes longer than it should have. <laughs> And, and we uh, cut it down. Just took hours and hours to shoot anything, <laughs> just because we'd we do like fifteen takes of something, and no one knew, or no, no one, re- neither of us knew when to say cut. We kind of we look at each other it. and go, "We were oh, in character." Should I cut? Should I cut? No. Okay, no, keep going. So, so because of your commitment to the character, you couldn't actually break character. That's right. Well, cut. that's the problem. Yeah, sometimes our characters aren't directors. Sometimes so. we're trying to direct within characters. So, no, let's go now. <laughs> but, uh, could you say that again? <laughs> if I were you, I would point the camera at that guy. <laughs> um, how did you choose which kind of vampire mo- myths and and so on to, to put in and to to discuss? Because like it's changed over the years. Like Bram Stoker's Dracula could go out in sunlight. Okay. He just wasn't as strong. So there's there's That's all right. sorts of different. You know, sometimes it's, they've been allergic to silver. Sometimes they've been alert. They've sparkled. Obviously, How well, do you... we sad with the Bram Stoker one. Mm. As well, a base, as a more I think the, like the probably Bella Lugosi yeah. era was the was where the rules came from. You know, they they can transform into bats. Yeah, I don't. I've I haven't even read Dracula. I've no, I've, I've seen I the movie it for you for your birthday. The book. Yeah, I read the, so, really I read the front that you cover. Didn't read it. <laughs> I don't know who wrote it. No, because sometimes you say Stroker. Stroker. I've noticed. <laughs> Bram, Bam, Bam Stroker. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people. Lot Wait. Of people. So is the uh, well the creepy, Wait, so it's oh, so I want to sort this out. The okay. um the ba- the Bram Stroker. Far out. <laughs> <laughs> Bram Stoker version. Does he? He doesn't Stoker. die in. He doesn't die in the. In sunlight, right? He doesn't die in sunlight. He can go out in the daylight. He's, he's, he's allergic he's, to crucifixes. Uh, yes, he doesn't like them. I love, he you, like them. I love you. Use the word allergic. Yeah. Ooh, hives. <laughs> yeah. Nasty hives. Garlic. Uh, garlic is bad, as I remember. Yes. Holy water is bad. Holy water is definitely bad. And stake through the heart. Bad. Uh, stake through the heart definitely bad. And but he can transform into like dogs. We've gone more for the yeah the movie yeah, uh, mm. yeah. Dracula kind of universal yeah horror. Those bats, again, with the direction, when there is a scene where someone turns into a bat, are you just like, well, fix it in post? I mean, just jump a bit and then... Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Well, we just jump. Just jump and then we filmed some empty we space. We have a... Um, tried to figure out how to do it. Well, better. our special effects people were very good because Wellington's full of people who do special effects. Mm-hmm. And um, they just tell us, no, you can. they'll be fine. You just jump. They'll be fine. We'll fix it. We'll bat that. It's no problem. They're used to yeah, saying we'll that to Peter Jackson. <laughs> we'll just oh yeah, it. we'll fix it. We'll fix everything. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. Did Peter Jackson in any way help on this? Uh, yeah, he was a great help. He lent us a lot of gear, and um, we filmed the exterior of the house was his um, old office, which is a big scary house. That's what his, his office was. Wow. Okay. And uh, yeah, no, he was very helpful. He so did supportive. So did he man- demand some kind of quid pro quo in return? You know, he helped you out, but then you had to go in on The Hobbit and, and do something. I don't think we could help much on The Hobbit. <laughs> could you possibly tell me off the top of your head the ages of the four main vampires in your I film? Completely no forgotten. way. No way. <laughs> How about the names? Could you do the names? Mm, yes. Mine's Viago. 
letters are. And there's Peter and Deacon. Peter and Deacon. Do you want a full cast list? I Peter's want a, I want a whole lot. <laughs> and the actors. I want, I want to know who did catering. Who did craft services. Catering was very good, actually. Um, Dangerously good. <laughs> <laughs> One important question, actually. We know what brought Viago to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he came for love. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about Vladislav? I think he's just been chased. You haven't worked on your backstory, Jermaine. <laughs> Well, there is one. There is one thing that we don't want to reveal because it's kind of a sure. spoiler in the end. But uh, I think these guys are just chased from, but you know, through the centuries from place to place. And New Zealand's pretty much the bottom of the world, and that's where they're at now. I like to think that they, in the um, you know, when there's a lot of um, immigration from Europe to New Zealand in the 1800s, that they heard that New Zealand was like the hot new destination. Um, and you know Australia was like sort of Too not, not so hot anymore. So yeah, so they yeah, they were all head, headed down to um, to New Zealand and Australia would be a terrible place for vampires. Yeah, yeah, perpetual sun. Anyway, they got to New Zealand. It was just like the piano, just all <laughs> muddy and raining and horrible. And they yeah. got stuck there. I feel like a crossover kind of pre- which is actually just what happened no, to all yeah. Europeans. So it's just I mean, it's actually what happened, isn't it? And can you talk talk to me about Stu because Stu is the uh, is a human who becomes part of the group. Who is Stu? When we made our short film, Stu was um, Tyker's flatmate and flat sharing mate. Flat sharing mate. Flat sharer. What would you would you say in that context? What do you call flatmate? flatmate. flatmate. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So now it's okay. I say flatter, but he was okay. He <laughs> was the flatter. <laughs> I call him a co-flatter. Yeah. yeah. And we were shooting some scenes with the vampires, and we said, Stu. Do you want to come around, come along? And he's really as like he is in the movie. He's like a very helpful guy. He just held gear and stuff, and like you know, walk around with a, some a backpack full of stuff that we needed <laughs> while we we're doing it. And then we said, "Do you want to be in this scene, just sitting with us?" And um, then he'll say, "He's your mate." And we just like the way he stood out from the rest of the vampires. Yeah, he's so normal. He's so normal, and uh, I think that's what's appealing. He's a <laughs> bit of a star back home now. Really? Yeah. He um, well, he was in IT before he. Um, did the movie well, he's still and now he's IT back guy. in IT but he's just the most famous IT guy in New Zealand you speak German in this film as well mm. Was did you did you learn it for the film or I spent a lot of time in Germany um, and back in the 90s and so I learnt a few phrases and these were just the, the dialogue and this is just made up of the words that I knew <laughs> that's, the, that's the only scene that isn't improvised because uh, Taika had to memorise it I had to use. I had to do what a lot of actors do: just memorize some lines. Wow, six, six or seven lines. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah what you do is you read training. the script and you read it again and again until it's committed to memory. And then when the cameras are on, you know you got to turn it on. You really turn Remember it on it. then, and you got to say it. Yeah, so you, you got to get it out from inside your brain, the memory part, out of your mouth. You got to access that. And with, and the way that it's cut is just you've just cut all around the bits where I'm looking off from the computer to a big bit of paper right next to it with those lines on it. I don't remember it. I couldn't. You don't do not then? You look really disappointed. No, you? I knew that. <laughs> I was surprised you said you memorised it. I was thinking, that's a lot. <laughs> you say this has taken a few years to come to pass. In that time, vampires in cinema and on TV as well have exploded, not literally, but they've been really, really popular. Were you concerned at any point there was going to be vampire oversaturation and yes. that you'd be lost? When we first... So just the idea. Mm. People were like, oh, vampires, that's pretty 70s. And then uh, after a while, people oh, vampires are cool now. And then, oh, vampires, they're yeah, hot. And then 
just rolling of the eyes when you'd mention what we're doing and eventually yeah it was late enough that people were ready to uh, make fun of vampires yeah i I was just worried we're quite loving about that vampire i was just worried that people some that someone would do this idea which seemed like a really obvious idea well someone did there was a belgian film which is a mockumentary about vampires that came in between (laughs) you should well great so someone did it you should see your face it's pretty amazing what was the point belgian film what were the vampires that inspired you i mean obviously lugosi but there's a lost boys reference in there as well explicitly which so vampire the vampires in the movie clearly watch vampire movies uh yeah they have to have an edited version with all the crucifixes taken out Ah, okay they have to have one of their minions kind of go through it and cut it on vhs tape Cut it on VHS tape, spliced the VHS together. Cut out all the sunlight scenes and the crucifix, all those um, cruelty short, towards vampires. Films. They take out the end where the vampire dies, usually. Yeah, yeah so it's usually sort of an hour long thing mm, yeah. with the vampire ending up triumphant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah, there's, that's all right. Yeah, there's Lost Boys. I guess there's a couple of little Twilight references in mm. there. Mm. Well, Salem's Lot. Do you know Salem's oh, yeah. Lot? So Salem's Lot and Nosferatu are kind of yeah. um, where Peter. It's like. A, a mixture of those which are you know one's copied off the other anyway and Vladislav has a little bit of Gary Oldman yeah. Dracula going on with the hair thank you at one point which yeah. is spectacular and my one's sort of like a just a perfect mix of Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt yeah from interview mm. and, and Mr. Happy and Johnny and Johnny and a little bit of German Mr. Happy and Johnny I think Johnny's more like a Venice Beach oh Deacon of, you're talking um, to yeah, Deacon. Deacon I yeah. thought you were going to say you were Johnny Depp from Dark Shadows <laughs> Oh, and Johnny from Dutch. <laughs> the three. Any role, just all Johnny's roles kind of rolled into one. Johnny Bruff, who plays Deacon. Yeah, Deacon is. I think I like to think of him as a Venice Beach kind of leather-clad, but studded, but rock also and roll mixed vampire. With, the, with Johnny, who plays one of our first comments when we got our first review, uh, mentioned um, the character Deacon not doing the dishes, and the first comment was. Oh, I flat with Johnny, and in real life, he also doesn't do the dishes. <laughs> I read that you were in a gang called the Vampires. That's right. This, yeah, you read about my gang. I did read about your. <laughs> I started a gang. Yeah. Jesus, how did you get this information? This was. The, Have you been looking at my police record? Supposed to talk about it. We had, we had bicycles. I, I had a chopper. Do you know what a chopper is? It has three, three gears. You know okay. a chopper? I and see where you're going with this. Yeah. No one else had them because they're a '70s bike, and it was the mid '80s, <laughs> and they're like. What's that? It's got gears. Yeah, I've got three speeds. I can go extra fast. They were, had BMXs, and we'd ride around at my insistence. And we had, we all had plastic teeth. And the people who didn't have them, I would use my own pocket money to get them plastic teeth. And we'd vampire teeth. We'd ride around and go, "I want to drink your blood." To little girls, and uh, yeah. you guys wow. were little as well. We were little. We were ten. <laughs> I just want to yeah. Clear that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They so yeah. They, we had some screams. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Amazing. You ruled the monster-themed gang yeah. world. <laughs> of yeah. When did the gang break up? What happened, man? I think we only had a couple of times where we the police busted around. you guys up, didn't <laughs> police, they? The police screwed were, you guys out. Sent a few of the you. Police were afraid because they South Island and yeah. The police didn't really bother us. I think they were afraid. Mm. That's probably why. Mm. Mm. Let's start this week's reviews section with the big release of the week, the $150 million chamber piece that is The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. Now, there will be a spoiler special dedicated to this. That will be up on Monday, November 24th. That's Monday, November 24th. So do check that one out. It's going to feature Francis Lawrence spilling on some secrets as well as us 
talking about it. Uh, but what did we think of the film? And here, let's, let's sum it up. Let's, let's boil it down into, and then split it unnecessarily into two parts. <laughs> what do we think? Hell's Bells. Yes, uh, so this is the first half of Mockingjay, and as such, if you've read the book, you'll know that it's not the most action-packed action-adventure you're ever going to see. Katniss Everdeen has been, basically last time we saw her, she was being airlifted out of the arena from the Quarter Quell games, where only victors were invited back to play. Uh, She's been rescued by forces who turn out to involve capital rebels, including Plutarch, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, and also the mysterious District 13. District 13 in in the Hunger Games world was supposed to have been um, destroyed utterly, 75 years earlier when when the districts rose up against the capital and were utterly crushed beneath its boots. Um, But it turns out that it is not so. District 13 actually negotiated a truce because they have nuclear weapons. Uh, They're essentially in a standoff with the capital and they agreed to pretend like they were totally gone in return for being left alone. So that's how the, the sort of balance of powers has lasted until now but they have come out in the open they've rescued Katniss they have also rescued the survivors of District 12 which has been raised by the capital um, just basically wiped out so there's only a few hundred people now surviving from Katniss's home including luckily her her mother and sister and she basically uh, has to once again I I guess establish herself in in extremely difficult and and sort of um, untrustworthy circumstances how would you put it so, yeah mm. she, she just doesn't know who to trust she doesn't know who can she can rely on and she's sort of again trying to find her way in a hostile world um, and Peter uh, Josh Hutchison's Peter has been left behind and is in the capital's clutches and she's you know very nearly insane with worry about him as well mm. so you know things haven't gotten easier for Katniss I think it's fair to say the issue is obviously what to do about it and I think a lot of this film is setting stuff up and, and establishing relationships which will come into play more in the second half because this is very, very light on action. If you thought Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows was a bit light on action, well, you know, this one takes that to a whole new level. Are they ever in a tent? <laughs> they aren't in a tent, but they spend basically all their time in a bunker, mm. um, which serves very much the same function. I mean, great, great performances from pretty much everybody involved, I would say. I think, you know, uh, Jennifer Lawrence continues to knock it out of the park as Katniss. And when you have, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Julianne Moore, who plays the president of District 13, Al McCoyne, in the room as well, like, I think they're terrific. Uh, it's just a question of, you know... Is this going to thrill as much as previous installments? And I think probably not. I sat down last night and I watched um, The Hunger Games. I watched Catching Fire uh, last night, at least the second half when they're in the when they're in the arena. Because um, I wanted to remind myself, because I, I really like this. I haven't read the books. I know mm. that people are very, very passionate about the books. Sure. And I totally understand that. Um, I really like the franchise. I really enjoyed that film. And I was watching it last night. And bloody hell, it's exciting. Like, it literally just gallops along from one, you know, the whole clock device is genius. Mm thrilling even the second time and this film is not at all and I came into it liking the Hunger Games franchise and after two hours I walked away kind of not liking it anymore I could I mean I was seeing Next Valley in the screening and and, and I could feel this phys- almost physical sense of my interest just disappearing as this film went on now I don't think it's necessary that it's a bad film I just don't think it's a film at all I genuinely do not think that this coheres to anything that conventional structure of a movie and um, I had the Joss Whedon quote that he that he, he was talking specifically about Empire Strikes Back yeah. which is a film that made, made me think about this because it has a similar sort of cliffhanger device except without any cliffs hanging off 
and uh, and he said you know a film has to stand alone it owes its audience that and it owes the respect of people that maybe haven't read the books and don't you know have that minutia yeah. aren't just going to be satisfied by seeing their favorite characters because that's all this film does nothing happens i mean the 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 opening is interesting enough because you're like where are they now oh there's Effie trinket how's she going to respond to this new environment but my god it's cynical it is so cynical it's breathtaking i would say though that the cynicism is on the part of the film company and i don't think it's on the part of the the sort of the creative people involved in this i would give it that much kind of credit i don't think francis lawrence i don't think you know jennifer lawrence i don't think any of the the cast or crew are being cynical like you know just to just to kind of clarify that if i oh if yeah I may. well no please because absolutely. i think i think they have um made great efforts to make this very much a character piece have tried really hard to you know delve into the people and the, and the sort of the politics of the world of panem um and i think that's interesting as far as it goes i admit that yes this is not as you know it doesn't it's not as propulsive it's not nearly as propulsive as the other two i was kind of tense throughout because you know you just do have that sense of uh, that catless does of danger lurking around every corner of people being out together mm. and and that sort of air of paranoia I think is quite effective but I, I agree that you know ultimately there's very little that happens and, and it should have been one film. Also were the <clears throat> first and second films were drenched in colour and spectacle and visual verve this is a very drab drab and monochromatic bland the visual palette here is browns and greys and even when they're in the bunker it's, it's, it's oranges however that said I don't know the books mm-hmm. at all um, so I didn't know what was going to happen in this film. Un- <laughs> Unlike my usual uh, practice, I-, I haven't looked up what happens on the internet already. It was a bit of a surprise to me. I kind of... I, I see where Phil is coming from. I do see it. I see where a lot of critics of this movie are going to come from. It- it's not really a movie. It's a, it's a, it's a placeholder, if you will. Um, having said that, I kind of enjoyed it because uh, I-, I thought it was well-written. For what it is, I thought it was very well acted. Jennifer Lawrence is fantastic, essentially, for the first hour of the movie at least. She's playing someone suffering from PTSD, mm. and uh, she's she's just great, absolutely great. She just conveys wonderfully all the horrors that Katniss has seen and processed over two films um, very ably. Uh, and it's very hard to rag on a film which features scenes in which Julianne Moore goes toe-to-toe with Philip Seymour Hoffman while Jeffrey Wright looks on and Woody Harrelson comes in and is brilliant and, you know, and Donald Sutherland mithers around and twirls his moustache and his beard to great effect and it's just really, really well acted. It's a very confident film for what it is. The, 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 uh, the you know, because the filmmakers are, are working from the strictures that they've been given, I guess, uh, and they make... They make a good fist of it. It's also really interesting. I called it a chamber piece, and it is. It's basically it's an off-Broadway play. It's two hours of people talking. There's a there's an action sequence about forty-five minutes in, and then there's a pseudo action sequence towards the end. Otherwise, it is people. It's a podcast. Essentially, it's what it is. Um, but it's not Aaron Sorkin, is it? I mean, I, no, I but agree. But, but 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 my point is, it's not Aaron Sorkin. But this movie is probably going to make. I think initially, it's going to be huge. 
where they let people tail off once they realise that it doesn't give them the wham bam thank you ma'am that they want the bang for their buck that they want necessarily you, okay fair enough they might they might leave it but this is a a very talky movie that's probably going to make seven hundred to eight hundred million dollars worldwide maybe even a billion that to me is interesting no one's going to c- come away from this thinking oh look at the success we've had with a with a talky cerebral blockbuster they're going to think let's look at the success we've had splitting a book in half unnecessarily I get that, yeah I agree with both of you in that I agree that the cast is is good I would disagree I don't think Francis Lawrence does as good a job with some of the opportunities. It's, it's a very sort of conventional, staid, staidly directed film compared to the other ones, mm. and uh, sometimes maybe yearn for the jollity of uh, of a downfall, for instance. Um, <laughs> it, it is these movies are incredibly somber, very somber, yeah. which is fine in itself and brilliant acting. I think I think Donald Sutherland comes into his own. There's mm. a bit where he gets cut shaving, which yeah. channels De Niro in, in The Untouchables. And he's he just drips menace without saying anything. Fantastic, Jennifer Lawrence carries this stuff. She's so good. Philip Seymour Hoffman, phenomenal. They're all really good. But I'm like, what's interesting in this? All the things that you know, that I'm look, you know, that could have been interesting. The mm. idea that actually District 13 is potentially would have become the capital in due course because the things that Julianne Moore, she's a demagogue just as Donald Sutherland's character is, and she's mm. using or is propaganda. She, or is she? Is you know, is this a proto-fascist thing happening? They don't really explore that. Effie Trinket, oh here she is, look at her. How is she gonna deal with this new life? Doesn't really explore that. Oh, I think it does. Barely. It touches on it. Jennifer Lawrence's sister, completely marginalized. You know, you don't see the other districts, what's happening in them. It, it retreads sequences. Anyway, so I, I I just think there were things that could have made this film work and it were interesting, but it didn't. It just it skimmed over that and the PTSD stuff. I agree, she's great with that, but she, she's done that in the other two films. I mean, you can feel her trauma throughout. You know, the bit where she sees um, where she sees her mentor getting beaten almost Sinner. to death when yeah. she sees Sinner in the last film, it drips off the screen. Um, I think you're right. I'm coloured by the fact that I really hate the fact that they've done this with the book. It's one really good film and a really good trilogy, I think. And they've turned it into something. Who's going to go back and go, I'm really in the mood for Mockingjay Part 1, you know, the Saturday evening? I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. really? I can't imagine many people watching it by On a, choice. Yeah, not not as a standalone. Yeah, as a standalone. But you know, for what it, for what it is, I I quite enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed that, and, and I know it's a it's a it's a result of the decision to split everything into two. And I don't know the book, but the next one's much more action packed. Helen, I'm guessing. Yeah, it will be. Um, I won't say too much. We'll talk about it in the spoiler special. Mm. Uh, and we again, we won't talk about it too much. I don't want to spoil the second film when talking about the first one. Okay. But um, but yeah, it, there, there's there's a lot of of. Uh, explosions to come but things happen what page are we up to we are up to about i was just looking we are up to in my edition which is about 440 pages we're up to about 199 so it is near enough halfway it doesn't feel like it but it is near enough halfway but yeah there there's there's a lot of the of the action is all to come there is a feeling, of course, that you know we've talked about this a little bit, and how we feel that the decision to split into two parts is is quite cynical. And what it does as well is that you have a number of scenes in this movie that feel repeated. There's a sequence where early on Katniss goes to see District Twelve, and she walks among the rubble and the ruins of District Twelve, and then about forty five minutes later, she does it again, but this time with people there to record her experiences and to document her reactions. And I, you, you know, you just feel that if they had condensed it all and redapted the book that would have happened just once yes so it does feel like they're treading water a little bit but uh you know for what it, for what it's worth i thought it was okay 
Yeah, we gave it three stars, which yeah. is a recommendation. Here's an interesting experiment. When they made <laughs> the second film, maybe somebody could just try to edit them into one film and see how many seeds from this film make the cut. Yeah. There's a challenge. Speaking of edits, somebody did an edit this week of And Julia, which is the uh, the Meryl Streep film about Julia Child that doesn't at all have Amy Adams in it. If you can find that online, really? I recommend And Julia. <laughs> That's really? awesome. How yeah. long is it? Was it? It's about an hour, and it's much, much better than a film you may have heard of called Julie and Julia. So, wow. Yeah. Was, did Tover Grace do that? Do you remember he did that? <laughs> That's Phantom Menace cut. Uh, he's now working on a cut of Interstellar where it's just him. So three stars now for The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1. Uh, next part's out next year. So let's move on now to what we do in the shadows. Ali. So there are some vampires. I love the tagline of this film. We've been talking mm. about the best taglines of the year and this has got a good one, which is some interviews with some vampires. And that's what it is. It is essentially an office-style, as I called it in my piece, bat-on-the-wall uh, documentary, which tells the tale of a group of four very childish man-children who just so happen to be vampires in a flat share in New Zealand, in a, a town. It's just so, it's so slough-like. It's just, it doesn't matter. It's just a place. Not where you'd ever really expect vampires. And it's about the four of them working with each other and they have distinct personalities. And One's the sexy one, one's the cool one, one's the dandyish, foppish, Austrian baron uh, type one. And it's it's as silly as that sounds, but even though it doesn't necessarily have a plot, it's not a movie that thrives on, then this happens, then this happens. It's just about watching these four people kind of bicker and scrap with each other. A new person joins the group, and then some a friend of his joins the group as well in ways that I won't quite reveal just now. Mm-hmm. But they react to this newcomer because they've been living together, or they the youngest one is 300 years old, at least. So when they have a new member of the group, it's like really roughs things up. You've also got other groups. It's not just vampires here in, in uh, New Zealand. You've got werewolves, as led by Reese Darby, who is desperately trying to get his fellow werewolves to calm down because they turn when they get too angry. So his rule is werewolves, not swearwolves. So to stop people from expleting and swearing and all that stuff, he just keeps telling them just calm it down, calm it down. Of course, the, the vampires walk past him and see the group and start doing like flicking V's and are very childish and so going, oh, you dogs, go get a bone. And so getting them to calm down. So you get these werewolves going, you're rotty, I hate you, boo. And then someone goes, you're a bastard. No, werewolves, yeah. not swells. <laughs> it's anyway, it's very silly, but uh, it is undoubtedly, and I love 22 Jump Street this year. You know how big fans well both 22 Jump Street and Lego Movie and, and other Lord and Miller productions but this one is possibly my funniest film of the year I think it's dry and sardonic and silly and takes there, there has been as we joked about in the interview there have been vampire comedies it's not unusual and there have been vampire mock docs that's been done before but this is this is just funnier more confident cleverer there are some scenes I might have gotten rid of uh, if I was in charge of it but it's otherwise a very slick, clever, immediately screaming cult movie. Yeah. That if it's near where you live, if it's on near where you live, just go and watch it in the cinema. Because I think watching it with people in a room, dark room, will actually go down really well. Then again, if you want to wait a little longer, get on DVD, do do that as well. But whatever you do, don't miss out on this film. Because I think it's in a lot of our top 20s of the year. And um, these little movies need a bit of encouraging, so yeah. go and get it. Same for me, it's in my top 20 of the year. It's, it's utterly wonderful, and there are so many quotable lines 
that are going to be on t-shirts and all sorts of things near you very soon so you may as well see it now so you'll actually get the joke you forgot to mention Nosferatu in the basement there's even a cupboard in the basement yeah of the and four it, it, yeah no no I know but the problem sign's like isn't it he's 12,000 years old he doesn't have to come to the flat meeting <laughs> stop it's just genius I this film made me laugh more than anything else this year and it takes the mick out of different brands of vampire mm. Twilight and Nosferatu and your typical I want to suck your blood you know it, it does all of those it, but it, yeah and it does such clever things with that as well it's not just that mockumentary thing it's, it elevates it into the sort of spinal tap mighty wind thing Is that mm. it actually takes it up a level and it's clever like they want to go out in Wellington on a Friday night and they want to go into a club but obviously you can't get into a nightclub unless you get invited in <laughs> so they have to get the bouncers to ask them into the club which is an incredibly complex thing to pull off and all these kind of challenges that they have and man it's funny they've it's ne- really funny they've never seen the sunlight never seen the dawn so they flick open a laptop and go to YouTube and type in dawn and up pops the dawn and they all go Ooh. yeah it's like it's like porn for them it's so clever <laughs> dawn and, porn. And yeah. I think that is what makes it what it is yeah. it's really really good four stars then for what we do in the shadows sounds a bit like we would give it a five or certainly three people in this room would so do go and check that one out immediately right let's move on now to that get on up uh, starring Chadwick Boseman of this podcast Yay. as James Brown. Yeah, it's a, it's a James Brown biopic. Um, if you know much about the man's life, uh, you're probably interested already. He started off uh, in poverty. He made it big. He went solo from his, from his initial group and made himself into the Godfather of Soul pretty much by force of sheer will as it's portrayed here. Mm-hmm. It's kind of framed with a, a little bit of a... A flashback device. The film starts off cross-cutting between different time periods in a slightly chaotic manner, which actually works brilliantly. But it starts off in the 80s where he actually got arrested for threatening some people with a rifle while high on PCP, while dressed in a tracksuit. You know, your usual. And uh, and then flashes back to hit the sort of the height of his fame when he was flying into Vietnam and being shot at in the plane uh, to perform for the troops during the Vietnam War. And then it flashes back further to childhood and it, it sort of jumps all about for about the first 10 minutes, you're not quite sure where you are. And then it sort of settles into a slightly more standard... Groove. Yes, which maybe, you know, doesn't work quite as well. I almost would have liked it to keep you guessing in that way and keep you kind of on, on edge in the way it did. But um, but yeah, I mean, Chadwick Boseman is absolutely terrific as Brown himself. I think this suffers slightly from... Uh, familiarity in the sense that if you've seen Walk the Line and and Ray and Walk Hard, which is a, a, I think an underrated comedy for my for my money, just by by definition of the of his life story, this shares some of the same beats. It just shares, you know, the the childhood and abject Southern poverty. It shares the you know the drugs. It shares the incredible music. It just it has some of the same kind of touchstones. Um, what sets it apart is, first of all, it's James Brown's music, and second of all, it's Chadwick Boseman as James Brown because I think he's he's absolutely terrific. And you get the the contrast of the wild performer on stage, and then this really very quite controlling guy off stage, and this you know sometimes very canny, sometimes very violent. It it, it at least touches upon. Um, his violence towards his wife it doesn't I, I think it gives him a little bit of a pass on it it all happens it generally happens off camera um, and you don't see the immediate after pa- aftermath you see his you see his guilt rather than her pain uh, which I think is a little bit of a pass yeah. um, but generally speaking it's it's pretty good is it one of those biopics that has other famous characters 
kind of coming in and out of the story? Uh, famous people? Not to a great extent. There's none of the sort of, hey, Elvis, how you doing? But there is uh, there is one thing where he goes on, he's, he's on a TV show and he's bumped from the closing number to the second last number. Um, the closing number is given to a new band just over from England called the Rolling Stones. <laughs> okay. And he basically knocks it out of the park with his performance and sort of struts off stage going, welcome to America, past a young Mick Jagger, who is one of the producers on this film. And that is a real memory <laughs> that he has. So that's kind of, that's kind of adorable, actually. But but um, but yeah, it's not it's not filled with random cameos for the sake of it. Four, I think. Four. Yeah, we. So yeah, we give this four stars. I mean, I'm I'm slightly low four, but just for okay. Bozeman itself, he, he's he's absolutely amazing. This is directed by Tate Taylor, who also directed The Help a yes. couple of years ago. Three of the actresses in that were nominated for Oscars. Yeah, and I think Octavia Spencer Octavia won. Spencer won yeah. So um, so yeah, I mean, fingers crossed for me. I think it's a, it's a weird Oscar race this year. It's quite mm. open. There's some great great performances, but I'm not sure we have a clear front runner yet. So. He could be in the mix. Four stars for Get On Up. Get on up to your local multiplex Whoa. and see it, Empire Magazine. Uh, is that in the review? Uh, it, no, it no, shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Also out this week is a new film from the great director Nuri Bilge Ceylan. Uh, Winter Sleep, which uh, won the Palm Door this year at Cannes, didn't it? The Palm's Door. It did. Did it? It definitely it did. did. It definitely, it definitely won did. That. It definitely won it. All right. No mistake. Don't, don't make me a fool. Mm. Winter Sleep, which won the Palme d'Or this year at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, Phil. Hi. I don't know why I'm turning to our art house guru. Because I've seen it, and I think it's good. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's good. It won the Palme d'Or, so I guess that speaks for itself. I think I think it's good. <laughs> yeah, it won the Palme d'Or, yes. so I'm backed up by my famous friends. Yeah. yeah. As you say, it's directed by probably the greatest living Turkish filmmaker. Um, he made Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, if you saw that. It's beautifully shot. Very thoughtfully paced um, contains six more action sequences than Mockingjay part one <laughs> and it's a story about a rather unpleasant pompous arrogant man patriarch um, and his frame relationship with his wife who runs a basically presides over a Turkish mountainside village doesn't have any action sequences obviously but it has a lot of big ideas and big dramatic beats and great character development and again beautifully shot we have described it in our review as probably the worst marital double bill. If you want to watch that with Gone Girl, you need to watch it with a marriage counsellor because it's not a particularly uplifting view of, of, of marriage, but a very you know fascinating character study. We gave it four stars, so that's a big recommendation. Four stars. Does it contain any music from the Canadian band Winter Sleep? I really like Winter Sleep. No, it doesn't, as a matter of fact. No. Do you think, I was thinking earlier, do you think Doctor Strange will have It's a Kind of Magic <laughs> at any point? Well, if Highlander Reboot doesn't get the rights, then... Or the Queen movie, for that matter. Well put. We may be accused of being sidetracked. Anyway, Winsley got four stars. Good. And if you haven't heard Winsley the band, go listen to them, they're great. Really? What, what sort of stuff? Are they like Ride or what, what are they like? They're not that described? good. No. Uh, no, but they, they uh, Google uh, or YouTube their song Dance Macabre. Uh, which is uh, a belter, as they say in Canada. Interesting. Exactly. Dance Macabre, the same name as a Stephen King book. Ah. Mm. Good book. Mm. Very good book. Not a novel, that's pointed out, but it's good. It's, it's about horror and his relationship with horror and all sorts of stuff. Cool. Excellent. Uh, also out this week is the latest movie from Gregarious interviewee Tommy Lee Jones. We cannot sanction his buffoonery, but we can sanction the homesman. <laughs> Which uh, we gave three stars to. It's a it's a western, but do not tell him it's a western. He will walk out of your interview, especially if you're Robbie Collin from the Telegraph. But do go and uh, see that. What? 
Did he walk out of Robbie Collins' interview? Robbie Collins' interview. Awesome. Yeah. Why is that awesome? I just think that's funny. It is funny. You called it a Western How Very well dare you. Yeah. Tell me somebody told him you've got to be in that room all day, so you've got to go back, Tommy. Can you imagine? That'd yeah. be amazing. But honestly, I'd be terrified being interviewing Tommy Lee Jones. His reputation precedes him. It really does. I don't think it's possible to have a good interview with I'd him. Rather com- I'd rather be accused, falsely accused, of committing a murder and have to go in the run and be hunted down by Tommy Lee Jones than have to actually interview Tommy Lee Jones. That's what I would, would you rather come yeah. into work? I think he'd have a better relationship with you if that <laughs> happened. <laughs> would you rather come into work, full kit wanker, Manchester United fan, or spend an hour and a half with Tommy Lee Jones one-to-one on camera? Both on camera. Am I wearing underpants? In which one? Either. Yes, you are wearing underpants in both, yes. Do I have to kiss the badge? Only if he's wearing one. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> that's not a badge, Chris. Uh, I think I'd go for Tommy Lee Jones. At least at least then I could I could talk to him about the key films of his life, you know, the Batman Forever <laughs> and US Marshals, you know, the the un- under siege. Really really get to grips with those movies. Really want to know what his thought process was on Under Siege. Anyway. That's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, <laughs> join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Hugh Bonnyfield, star of Downton Abbey, and the delightful, it really is delightful, Paddington. Uh, and the three stars of Horrible Bosses 2, which is less delightful, but they are great. Jason's Bateman and Sudeikis and Charlie Day. Uh, it's a packed old podcast as we head inexorably towards the end of the year. Uh, until then, it's goodbye from uh, Ali. Goodbye. Well, you're not. You know, I pointed at Phil, and then yeah, sorry about that. But I responded to my name. I know. I don't know why that happened. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Helen. Farewell. Fairly well. Uh, don't forget the Hunger Games special, which will be up on Monday, and it is goodbye from me. I'm off to get up, get on up, get up, get on up, stay on the scene, get on up, like a sex machine. See you next week. Not much like. Exactly like. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, yes. No, pretty. Exactly. Pretty much a Show me poof, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>